Hello there, how are ye? This is Jeremy Henson from the Eureka Podcast, and I have never even heard of this I Doubt It with Dolomore show. No, 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 thank you. I get my news and politics from a show, oh, what's that called? Ah, the Brittany Page Show. You know, come to think of it, she refers to a man named Jesse Dollimore on there, and sometimes I hear him talk back. What does he say? It's a uh, relative to, I was in the military. <laughs> yeah, if you ask me, I don't like this character, Dollimore. He seems to be piggybacking off the success of Brittany Page. Nope. You heard it here, folks. I will not even give I Doubt It with Dolomore a chance. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dolomore. All right. Wow. Welcome to the show. Episode 150. What a mile marker. 150 episodes. Thank you very much. I am your host of I Doubt It with Dollamore, Jesse Dollamore. And sitting across from me, the lady who's afraid of magic, Brittany Page. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I am. Didn't, I'm not currently you, afraid of it. You didn't think I was going to go there. <laughs> well, I'm trying to specifically, um, I'm trying to determine what you're you're referring to specifically. Well, well, we've been watching a lot of Penn and Teller Fool Us. Oh, yeah. Great on, show. On the CW. Great show. Who knew that was a network? And you you re- regaled me of a tale from I guess high school is that right or yes. just after high school? Yes. Where some kid did some sleight of hand magic tricks in front of you, and you were convinced that he was of the devil. Okay, well you're making it sound like a, a five year old <laughs> did a magic trick for me, and I it just blew me away. That was not the case. So I okay. So a fifteen year old did magic for you, and it blew you away. Well, it was someone who was my same age. So we were probably sixteen. And all right, all right. So sixteen. Yeah. So this is when I was working at Boondocks Fun Center in Meridian, Idaho. And which is like a go kart, batting cages, miniature golf arcade place right so it's a place where you can go and take your kids to have birthday parties right and so they had these birthday party hostesses and one of them was a a man who could do magic tricks a boy a boy who could do (laughs) magic tricks and he was really good so one night he was doing magic tricks for all the employees and he came to me and he did this magic trick where he had like these these foam or felt balls, and they were perfectly round, but he flattened them and pulled them apart, and even had me flatten them and pull them apart to see it was it was just one ball, right? Mm-hmm. And he put it in the palm of my hand, had me close my hand, squeeze it tight so I couldn't see the ball in my hand, and he, you know, said some abracadabra over my hand, and then told me to open it, and three balls popped out of my hand. And I felt like I was like tripping on acid, like I was having an out of body experience. It like blew my mind. 
I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, how the hell is he doing this, right? And I know there's a solution. Yeah, because, it's sleight of hand. Yeah, he, it's, not, it's not really magic, <laughs> right? Well, we know somebody. I do, we yes. We personally know someone who kind of is of that, that thought that, yo, no, they're, they're really doing that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I talked to this person after they saw a magician and they were explaining pretty crazy tricks, pretty insane things. And I said, yeah, well, you know, I don't know how to explain that, but I'm sure there's an explanation for it. And they said, no, no, I mean, they did this and it was incredible. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I know, but there has to be some reason for how oh. it happened. It's not just that they have magic powers. So good. But apparently some people think they do. Some people believe in magical things. They believe in psychics. They believe in sorcery. They believe in astrology. And they believe that card tricks are magic. (laughs) So it's nice to have you on board the logic train now. Because apparently you didn't used to transport yourself by that method. (laughs) I was just really impressed. Yeah, mm-hmm. you you the way you explained it to me was not just tripping on acid, but you you felt nauseous. Yeah, like you were losing your your composure. You didn't know what was going on. Yeah, I like started gagging. I was going to vomit. <laughs> no, um, it wasn't that bad, but I was I was pretty freaked out. Yeah. Oh, the wiles of being a teen. Really, really good. Well, because then he put the three balls back in my hand and did the abracadabra thing again and then opened my hand and then it was like six balls. And then it was like real balls in my hand. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that would have been a much better trick. This magic trick went downhill real quick. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's do a little bit of follow up. In a story that we didn't get to last episode, and I guess we'll talk about last episode now, since we're just going right by it, Uh, Jared Fogle, we talked about him before, the former Subway restaurant pitchman, is facing five, he's pleading guilty to, so it's not that he's facing um, the time, he's going to do time, but the prosecutors have agreed to recommend five to 12 and a half years in prison for his crimes related to child pornography and sex with children. Jared Fogle has been charged and has admitted to participating in a five-year criminal scheme to exploit children. Children as young as six years old, 14 victims in all. Beginning around 2010, Authorities say Fogle traveled to New York City to pay minors for sex. The feds say he paid a 17-year-old girl to have sex with him at the Plaza Hotel, then offered her a finder's fee to find him another young girl, stating, the younger the girl, the better. The indictment says Fogle convinced that same girl to send three nude images of herself to his email account, later paying her again to have sex at the Ritz in Manhattan. Authorities say the girl had also told them she'd had sex with Fogle three times when she was just 16. This is about using wealth, status, and secrecy to illegally exploit children. Investigators began taking a closer look at Fogle when Russell Taylor, the executive director of the Jared Foundation, was arrested two months ago on federal child porn charges. 
Authorities say Fogel received images and video from Taylor of partially clothed minors engaging in sexually explicit conduct. Investigating this case was no small task. It included search warrants for 16 smartphones, five tablets, six laptops, six hard drives, five cameras, including hidden cameras, flash drives, 10 memory cards, 46 CDs, and 22 DVDs. Investigators looked at nearly 160,000 text messages, more than 47,000 images, and more than 3,300 videos. As part of his plea deal, Fogel will go to prison for anywhere from 5 to 12 and a half years. He's also promised to pay restitution, $100,000, to each victim to cover counseling. He knows that restitution can't undo the damage that he's done, but he will do all in his power to try to make it right. Uh, disturbing, to say the least. I'm a little bothered at the recommendation of the light sentence. Why the light sentence? Why not take this to trial when you have all of that evidence that's listed? The 3,300 videos, the, 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 the data from hidden cameras. It's creepy enough that you're having sex with children and participating in the production and viewing of child pornography. But what's, I mean, hidden cameras. Right. So Jared Fogel is actually turned 38 today. Today uh, is his today. birthday. Well, happy birthday, asshole. And so if he gets the maximum 12 years, which it's just crazy that that's the maximum in right. this case, he'll be 50 years well, old. Well, it's not the maximum sentence. If they followed federal sentencing guidelines, he could face up to like 50 years. But it's the prosecution that's recommending five to 12 and a half years. I have heard reports, though, that there's a chance that the, the judge can completely negate that and do his own thing, which I think would be fantastic. Right. I was referring to the agreement, I thought, oh, that the, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. defense and the prosecution had come to where the defense isn't going to ask for less than five years. Right. And the prosecution is going to recommend five to 12 and a half. Right. Just a recommendation, though. Right. So if he gets the, the 12 years, he will be 50 years old. Yeah. That's still young. Right. Not just that. It's also that he's sitting on a pile of money right now. His wife is now filing for divorce. He's worth, I guess, an estimated 12 to 15 million dollars. If he let's say he just loses half of that, so he has six million bucks, and then gives a hundred thousand dollars to let's say fifteen vi victims, that's a million five. He's still left with four and a half million dollars when he gets out of prison, that will be sitting there accruing interest, he'll be able to just disappear into obscurity, living his wealthy life. And that's, for me, that's not good enough. It's not harsh enough. He, the trauma and the damage that he did. Listen, we have laws like this in place. Child pornography and predator. And th this is rape, folks. This isn't, you know, some promiscuous gal who, who just, well, you know, she's almost eight. This, this is child rape. No, of course. He went after a 16-year-old, paid for sex with a 16-year-old. Right. And then said, get me someone, the younger, the better. Yeah. These laws are in place to protect the most innocent and the, the least among us relative to being able to protect themselves. And when we fail children, and when we send a message 
to other horrible child rapists and child pornographers that, hey, if you do it, eh, you, know, you might get five years in prison. No big. I think, I think it sends a very, a very bad and destructive message to others who are playing the same dangerous game. So had this gone to trial, he could have faced up to 50 years in prison. And the sentencing hearing is scheduled for November 19th of this year. Yeah. So I guess we'll we'll see what happens. And we will certainly follow up. As a condition of his plea deal, Fogel will be restricted to only supervised contact or communication with minors upon the approval of his probation officer. And this is a key part of the story as well. He has two children. A boy and a girl. Right. And so supervised visits with his own children will be allowed only with pre-approval of their mother. Right. Which hopefully she takes the hard line. I mean, some would say that it's, it's no, those kids, they need their dad, whatever he is. And I, I think there's an argument to be made that having a child rapist father is worse than not having contact with the aforementioned child rapist father well they were well jared fogel was in possession of photos and videos that involved children as young as six years old that's right so i mean i if i was the mother that would be extremely concerning in terms of my children and having him around my children which are what's going through his head in those interactions what's happening there i mean it would be it's just such a Sad, terrible situation. Yeah. Uh, Very sad. I mean, that's it. It's sad and terrible and unfortunate. And I wish there must be something else going on relative to the sentencing for the prosecution to take such a dealing with this with such kid gloves in the sentencing phase of this, because recommending 12 and a half years for over 10 victims, 12 to 15 victims or whatever that number is, is... A miscarriage of justice, and I don't want to speak so like hyperbolically, but it really is. It's it's not enough. It's not enough. All right. Well, not to move from child rapist Jared Fogle onto Sable and Dave, <laughs> but I did want to address the last episode. We we had a, a super long, super long episode, which some of which like we covered this in the other episode, but it was just so long. We wanted to get to the Dolomocracy stuff. To, to open up an, a dialogue and an opportunity to actually discuss some politics with someone who doesn't necessarily agree with me. Uh, it didn't necessarily work out the way I thought it was going to. However, you know, a conversation was had. We did try to move the conversation forward with another viewpoint, and we, we appreciate you listening. Right. And if you are listening to the show for where you listened to the show for the first time on that episode, we just want to let you know that that was not a normal episode. Normally, we don't have a guest sitting in or or we've never had two guests certainly sitting in for the entire show. And next time we will definitely be sure to say at the top of the show, hey, listen, this isn't normally how the show goes. Just so new listeners who are hearing it for the first time aren't like, Hey, what's going on with a lot of people on this show? Right. And also, <laughs> hey, what's going on with Jesse Dollimore's voice that sounds like he's talking in s- <laughs> from within a bum's asshole? Yeah, that was not good sound quality there. Echo- well, what happened? And I don't want to piss Brittany off by saying that I don't want to talk about how the sausage is made. Oh, God. <laughs> but 
I have, I've been cursed with this sound that comes out of my mouth when I speak. And so, by virtue of that, my mic is turned way, way down. And everybody else who has normal human voices, (laughs) their mic has to be turned way, way up. Which means... My voice is not only picked up by my microphone, but it's also picked up by everyone else's microphones in the room. At that time, three microphones. Yeah, that's right. So that that hollow sound you hear is a very, very slight delay of my voice being picked up by everybody else's. So anyway, sorry about the audio quality. I was very bummed, but decided to put it out anyway. And also, it's nice to to have, you know, every once in a while, somebody in the studio to, to bounce some other ideas off of and... and uh, and talk about some issues. So thanks for tuning in, as you always do. We appreciate it very much. If you'd like to sound off about this or any other thing, 657-464-7609. If you are not a fan of leaving voicemails on Google Voicemail, <laughs> you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. And we should also say something to Mark Sh- who is oh, patiently waiting? Probably going to be pissed off that yet again <laughs> he is receiving no response to his very long email. Listen, Mark, sh- just know that when I finally do get to your beautiful email, it is going to be a a, a wonderfully well crafted and well researched answer, and uh, it's going to be real good. Okay, don't overpromise. <laughs> don't overpromise. Well, maybe by the time I get to it, he'll just be happy that, oh, goddamn, finally. All right. Well, the next piece of follow-up involves uh, one of our favorites on the show, George Zimmerman. Don't don't say one of our favorites on the show. Well, it's he's he's a favorite just by virtue of the fact that we've talked about him so many times. Yeah. And what a bizarre character he is. He's in the news yet again. The controversial gunslinger has unveiled his latest <laughs> artwork. Really? Is that really how that... Who wrote this article? This is the New York Daily News. The New York Daily News. And they ascribe the controversial gunslinger, George Zimmerman. <laughs> wow. So he has unveiled his latest artwork, the Confederate battle flag, which he's dedicated to the Florida gun supply owner who banned Muslims from his shooting range last month. Quote, this painting was painted in honor of Andy Hallinan for being a true patriot and leading the country into a better, safer America. Remember, we talked about this gun store on the show. The Stars and Bars prints, which are each signed and numbered by Zimmerman, feature the words, the second protects our first. Uh... Zimmerman said it has a double meaning, quote, The first flag I painted on this canvas was an American flag, but I decided to repaint over it with the Confederate flag when I heard Andy was being sued by CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. The second flag I painted was the battle flag, which we need in America in order to protect the first, he said in a statement. We need the Confederate battle flag in America to protect the First Amendment of the Constitution, which guarantees the rights to free speech and assembly and right to religion uh, freedom of uh, religion and all that but that's guaranteed under the constitution of the united states so the confederate battle flag doesn't guarantee anything other than jackassery right i think he was saying the second flag i painted was the battle flag which we need in america in order to protect the first flag i painted which was the american flag which still doesn't make any sense (laughs) 
Uh, goddamn. You know, this guy is, he's, I don't think he's long for the world, and I don't want to make predictions because that's, you know, it's not what I do, but he's constantly in trouble. He's constantly brandishing, brandishing weapons at his, at his loved ones, at his girlfriends, at his partners. He's constantly having domestic violence issues. He's constantly having road rage issues. It's, uh, it's disconcerting to say, to say the least. So in case you're looking to purchase, each signed copy <laughs> is listed for $50 or $48.90 if paid in cash. The original is potentially worth $100,000 and will later be raffled off to one of the buyers. I don't... Are, he's, you could really get a signed George Zimmerman print for $50? Or forty eight ninety if paid in cash. Why well, it almost is worth it just to have craziness framed and hanging on your wall. Any <laughs> any money made will be split between both men and go toward funding their quote legal funds, living expenses, and advancing their mission to change the country. Now, when they're talking about legal funds for both men, so right. one of those legal funds is for George Zimmerman. They're talking about, you know, his the domestic terror, domestic right. violence, his road rage instances. Well, I'm sure he also owes money for his his defense for the killing of Trayvon Martin so many years ago. Yes, exactly. So that is a $50 he will not be getting from myself. I can't speak for Brittany. I know she loves racist killers. Oh, my God. (laughs) You're the worst. All right. Well, listen, last week on This Week Tonight, or last week tonight, John Oliver's show... Just go with it. Okay. <laughs> he did uh, an expose, as he does every week, on prosperity preachers, on Robert Tilton and Popoff, those types of guys. I would put Joel Austin into that group. And we wanted to kind of talk about it a little bit. We want to give his website and his phone number out because I think he's doing something special here that needs to be talked about. He's asking for donations. He's asking for money. And I think there's a there's a reason behind it other, and this is just me th- noodling it through, but I think there's a reason other than trying to do, play a joke. I think he really does want to have some money in, a, in some coffers that he's not going to pay tax on and then have standing when the IRS comes to try to, you know, he's making a point here. And I think it would be great to support it. So we want to give the address where you can mail money, like a $5 bill or a $1 bill, whatever. And then also the phone number. So the website is Our Lady of Perpetual Exemption, right? This is the name of John Oliver's church because he's trying to illustrate the fact that churches have unmonitored tax exemption. That's right. Yeah. And so you can donate. You can send your donation to Our Lady of Perpetual Exemption, P.O. Box 1954, New York, New York. 10113 or or you can call 1800 this is legal that's right uh, on the website it says low true believer the hour of donating to pastor mega reverend and ceo john oliver's our lady of perpetual exemption church is at hand can you feel the spirit stirring within you specifically the spirit of tax exempt monetary compensation if so please send a check cash or money orders 
to, as Brittany just said, Our Lady of Perpetual Exemption, P.O. Box 1954, New York, New York, 10113. And then there's like a, a disclaimer below where they have uh, the fact that they are a tax-exempt organization under the Internal Revenue Code, and they give their, their 501c3 number. Anyway, I think it's a fabulous idea. I actually very recently just did a video on Joel Osteen and how it's not necessarily focused on the fact that he is a prosperity preacher, but it's that the gospel of Jesus Christ is purportedly supposed to be a global message. And when he is speaking these wild general platitudes that are geared toward white middle-class America about thinking positively and praying bold prayers, and that's how you're going to change your life and change your station in life, um, it leaves millions and millions and millions upon millions more starving and dying of disease, thirsty African children in the lurch because it doesn't apply to them. Well, so due to the popularity of this John Oliver last week tonight episode, the IRS came under fire this past week for only conducting three audits of churches total in 2013 and 2014. Unbelievable. And zero between 2009 and 2013. Anything designated a church, including the controversial Church of Scientology, is exempt from paying taxes due to the First Amendment to the United States Constitution granting the free exercise of religion. So John Oliver started this church to really ruffle some feathers, stir the pot a bit, and see if he could do anything about the fact that the IRS effectively just lets anyone become a church. That's right. Yeah. And apparently he has received thousands of dollars, John Oliver. Yeah, I'm going to send like a $5 bill because I really want to contribute to this and see what comes of it because I, I really like the fact that someone is going to stand up, do the due diligence, do the research behind it, and make something happen. It's it's beautiful. Which kind of leads us to, to to what's next. This is super interesting to me. We I stumbled across this blog last year, and it's we've been playing kind of email tag to get to get uh, Mark on the show. There's a blog out there, and it's called Doubting Mark and Atheists Adventures in a Land of Faith. And it's this guy who goes to churches and he has a specific review criteria that he's developed. And he, he, he attends the church service and then goes to his blog and reviews the church and the service. And joining us via the miracle of Skype is the aforementioned Mark, Doubting Mark. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing very well today. How are you? Yeah, great. And we really appreciate you coming on the show. Tell us a little bit about... I have a, a, mil a million questions, but tell us a little bit about what kind of sparked in you or motivated you to create this, what I think is a very unique blog. Well, um, it was really sort of the Pope's fault, actually. Um, <laughs> Goddamn Pope. As most yeah. things are. <laughs> yes. So I, I remember uh, several years ago, uh, you know, we just gotten the new Pope, and he made a statement that at the time was sort of mistranslated and misreported. And what he, what he said was, um, even atheists could be good people. And somebody mistranslated and misreported that as even atheists can go to heaven. And I, you know, that interested me a great deal as, as an atheist who hangs out in the atheist forums on Reddit and other places. And so I, uh, I, I was commenting about that on, on Facebook. Of course, we found out later he didn't say I could get into heaven, but he did say that, you know, I could be a good person. And my comment about that was, 
well, you know, here we have sort of a world leader, a world religious leader, who's saying something nice about atheists. And you don't hear that very often. And in fact, you never hear that. You usually hear something that's not very nice. And so, you know, my comment on Facebook was, wouldn't it be nice if everybody, you know, said that you can be a good person even if you're not following your faith. Right. And a a minister friend of mine said, well, we do. In fact, we do that all the time. You don't know it because you don't go to church. And it, I said, I'll take that bet. And, <laughs> and so I started going to churches to kind of, you know, and that, and that, that sort of, it, it sort of morphed into, well, I'm a humanist, and and what I think is a person who has got an audience who's coming to listen to what that person has to say really has an opportunity to do some good. You know, even if they're religious or, or you know, it could be anything. It could be a politician or, you know, someone who owns a coffee shop or whatever. And if that person has an audience, then it, I kind of feel like that person sort of has an obligation to to do something that's good and helpful. And so what I was reviewing the churches on is whether or not they were actually encouraging their followers to go out and be good people and do good things. Because if you don't do that, it's it's a it's a missed opportunity, I think. And so what churches did you find that passed your criteria most often? Um, the ones that passed my criteria the most often were the ones who didn't have people with divinity degrees giving the sermon, right? That uh, I found that the unity uh, Unitarian Church was really quite good. I found that uh, my time visiting uh, the Quakers was was really quite nice. Huh. Interesting. And, and I also found, and this is this is the the really big surprise for me. And, and uh, for a lot of people who've read the blog, is that I found that the Mormons had a very compelling humanist message. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you, that, that kind of leads us naturally right into the next question that I have, which is, how did you develop, let's talk a little bit about your, your review criteria uh, on your blog. It's being good to your fellow human, help your community, be good to yourself, and good and timely advice. And if these things are all kind of uh, dispensed in, in a, in the proper manner, that that's, I guess what I'm saying is you, you don't just review these arbitrarily. You really have a system in place. How, how did you develop that system? That system came out of my, my disappointment with uh, my first church visit. And so I, I went to visit a, a Methodist church and Methodists are known to be pretty, you know, groovy and liberal and all of that. <laughs> right, right. And, and so I went to this Methodist church and I, they had a program and I was thumbing through the program and the program said that they were going to, they had a quote from their, um, uh, someone who's high up in the church authority who's in South America and was talking about uh, how you can't have peace and justice without uh, economic justice. And I thought, wow, what a great thing to talk about. You know, I, I'm, I was really looking forward to hearing somebody comment about this in the, you know, in the lesson that the, that the pastor was giving. And I didn't get any of that. I got none of that. What I got was obey Jesus because he'll be cranky at you if you don't. Because the story was about <laughs> Jesus being really cranky at his followers in a boat and yeah. how, how they were... Um, they were afraid that the boat was going to get swamped, and so they woke Jesus up from his nap, and and he fixed the calmed the waters, and then he went back to sleep and told everybody to stop being wimps. It's, right? it's, it's <laughs> funny. It's funny in the Bible that all these times when Jesus gets pissed off, or it's either they're sleeping, and then 
and then he has to wake him up and say, "Hey, fuckers, get to praying," <laughs> or or in the boat where where he's trying to nap, and then they wake him up and piss him off. It's <laughs> Jesus gets pissed off a lot in the Bible. He's yeah. a cranky dude. Well, why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about? Well, I want to know two things: your most memorable experience, both positive and negative. I think my most memorable experience that I had was. Uh, I guess the negative is the thing that sticks out, uh, I guess, the most. And uh, so my the most negative experience was was going to a church here in Seattle called Mars Hill. Oh, yeah, Mark Driscoll. Yes, Mar- Pastor Mark Driscoll. Um, he snarked at me on, on Twitter, which I, I, I think is kind of fun. But I, I went to his church, and, and I, was, I was very – at first I was sort of um, looking forward to it because – you know, they had a band on stage, and the music was good. They had a Starbucks coffee in the back. Ooh, and, fancy! And it was great. I mean, they had they had video screens everywhere. It was it was, and the people were young and energetic, and it was kind of cool. And then they proceeded to talk about all the different ways that people needed to give them money, and I was really, <laughs> really put off by that. You know, I, I felt that 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 it, it wasn't just that it was a bad church; that it was. You know, it was it was really a, a money making machine for the people who were in charge of it, and I and I it, it 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 pissed me off. I wasn't expecting to get angry, but that that pissed me off. Have you ever been approached by like a let's say a, a, a suspicious congregant who kind of figured the fix was in and like, hey, what are you doing here? Never. Really? In fact, there there have been times when I didn't feel comfortable necessarily telling everybody what I was doing, right? Not that I not that I wanted to lie about it. Do you I normally just, tell people what you're doing when you're there? About half of them, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh and and when I when I find that that when they find out who I am, they're usually pretty friendly. I've I've never had anybody be uh really really sort of overtly unfriendly with me uh except for uh, let me get the guy's title right he is the proto presbyter of the uh the eastern orthodox church is a greek orthodox church here he didn't like the way i was dressed and he he told me that that i might cause a riot if i didn't leave so well how were um, you how were you dressed I was dressed like Jesus. I was in sandals and No, Mark, uh, listen. Everybody knows Jesus wore a tuxedo everywhere okay. he went. <laughs> <laughs> and he, I was dressed I was dressed like a sloppy tourist is and, how I was. And so he wanted you in a suit? I mean, what what They do have a dress code. Um it's it's a pretty formal place. And so, you know, uh the next time I went I wore business casual and nobody nobody glanced twice at me. So Well that's an interesting phenomenon because you would think they would just want anyone in the church that they can get. You know, they want people to come to the church, but apparently apparently not. You would think so. But this particular church was fairly well attended. So I'm not sure that they they're not I mean, most of the churches that I visited, quite frankly, were kind of dying, right? Uh, but this was not one of them. This one was pretty well attended. And in the, the Orthodox faith they, you know, it's got that word orthodox in there. They believe that there is a particular way to do it. There's a right way to worship and a wrong way, right? Mm. And they're not, um, they're not interested in ecumenism, or they're not interested in, in getting along with other churches. You know, they're not. They they have they have a very specific way that you must worship. And 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 it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever been to an Eastern Orthodox service. No, but it was uh-huh. it was very much like being at a at a um, at a at a Jewish uh, synagogue. It was very similar in a lot of ways. Are you now currently an atheist? Do you, do you come from a a certain faith tradition? 
I come from a tradition that's faith-wise is pretty mixed. My father was a true believer. He believed in a lot of things. He was a Scientologist. Uh, he believed wow. in he believed in Edgar Casey. There are Jehovah's Witnesses in my family. There, um, uh, he believed. My father believed in Atlantis. He believed he could leave his body and go to the moon. I mean, he did a lot of that. He, so, he was, so you, I mean, I don't know how old a guy you are, but your dad seems like a seeker. Did he come? Did he come of age like in the in the sixties and seventies when, when that that whole movement, you know, the Moonies and all the, the all the crazy stuff was going on? Did he kind of come around then? Yeah, sort of. He he's more of um of a late fifties hmm. uh, person. He's he's a little bit. He's on the he's on the very very young end of of baby boomers, and so um so he's you know he he missed the hippies by about five years. He was a little too old for that. Uh, but he's he's always been yeah kind of a seeker, and I think the the faith that he ended up settling in was the Christ Unity Church, which is sort of Unitarian but sort of sort of Unitarian and Christian mixed. Hmm. And so you you come out of that tradition yourself, or have you kind of always doubted and and kind of atheism? Not it's not obviously a religion, but have you kind of always been a doubter and a skeptic? When I was very little, I was very much a believer, or at least I really tried to be a believer because I felt that that's what I was supposed to do. When I got older and growing up in a rural community in Colorado that had as many churches as it had people, right, I, I kind of got tired of, of the argument of you know whether or not you believe that Jesus was real and all of that. And so what I ended up sort of convincing myself was that I was a deist which is a way that I could sort of avoid the argument. I could say I believe in God and not have to believe all the Christian trappings that go with it. And people were less less argumentative about that. And later in life, I moved to Seattle and I discovered that an awful lot of my friends were atheists. And it was it was a sort of moment where I kind of realized it's like, well, you know, it's it's okay for me to be an atheist. I'd never It had never occurred to me that it was okay to be an atheist. Yeah. And I went through a period when I first sort of, I, I don't know, coming out, it's a silly way of saying it, but you know, becoming a, a very vocal and, and very open and public atheist where I was, you know, I, I did the angry atheist thing where I wasn't, I wasn't just, I've been there, brother. Uh, I've been there. Yeah. I was, I wasn't just an atheist. I was an anti-theist for a while, but, but fortunately I sort of grew out of that. I mean, because that's, that's just, you're a bore when you're, when you're, you know, constantly well, that way. I talk about it kind of in, in reference or relation to like the stages of grief. It, the, the same thing happens when you come out of faith and into lack of belief where you go through or you're, you're bitter. Yeah. I wasted my life. I'm pissed off. And I, I've done the same thing. And now I've kind of, I'm kind of happily and comfortably settled into just being you know, I do believe that being an atheist and not believing in the mythologies of of any organized religion or faith or belief in gods is just atheism. It's a better way, and secular humanism is a better way to live your life. Yeah, I'm I'm slightly disappointed with the atheist community, at least the community that I'm sort of in touch with here in Seattle, because they still want to sit around and debate about the existence of God. I'm kind of done with that. I, yeah. you know, I, I don't need to argue about whether he exists or not. I, I'd like to, to get atheists together and, and, and do more productive things with our, with our lives that just don't have anything to do with God. I, we don't have to be defined by the fact that we don't believe in God. We should be defined by the fact that we're people who do 
you know that we're humanists. Right? I, I agree with that. We've we've uh, we've become close with Ryan Bell of a, a year without God, the, the former Seventh Day Adventist pastor, and we've had conversations both on air and off about the atheist movement, how it's it's not really a fit for me when we go to gatherings of atheists, whether it be you know a lecture with Michael Shermer and Bill Nye recently at Caltech, we went there and. There, all these atheists with these, like, I'm trying to shock you because I'm an atheist t-shirts. They can be very aggressive. It's just, it's, yeah. it's kind of yeah. weird to me. It doesn't really, it doesn't really jive. So so let me ask you this, and, and we'll wrap this up briefly. Um, there is kind of a new movement amongst atheists. That's the Sunday assemblies. Have you ever been to one of those? I have not, and I would love to go to one. Yeah, I'm I'm still up in the air about it. I don't know. It seems weird to me, and maybe it's just my... My knee-jerk, that eh, sounds like church, and I, I don't want to do that. But I just, sitting around singing Steve Miller band songs doesn't, <laughs> doesn't necessarily seem like a good time to me. But if there is a, 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 a larger motivation toward community activism and service, then I think I could get down. Or, or even if it's just a nice afternoon to just kind of hang out. I mean, honestly, I kind of like that aspect of church. If you look at my blog, you'll see that I'm always talking about the architecture and the facility and the people and were they nice and how do they react and the music and all of that. And I kind of like that. I like I like having a place to get together. So if I if I were to become a churchgoer, I I I wouldn't have any problem, you know, sitting in the pews at a Unitarian church or or going to visit the Quakers because they had a they had a pretty good scene there too and I like that. So given all this experience you have, what would you say you've learned from attending all these different churches? I have learned that um, the the faiths are kind of dying. At least it seems, in, in my limited sample set here in Seattle, they're, they're dying. There are some churches that are just barely hanging on. And I think that the younger generation is just not going to church mm-hmm. as much. The people who are holding on to the faith are are the ones who are uh, you know they've been doing it for years and years and years right the, and, and what would seem to be the exception to that the rock and roll young churches they have to constantly 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 recruit because they have huge turnover people will go to church a young person will go to church for a while and then they will just say this really isn't for me and then they'll leave right and so those those churches can survive for a while so long as they can continue to just massively recruit. And so the churches that are successful are those kinds of churches that are massively recruiting or the ones where there aren't a lot of that faith around. Like there's, there's not a lot of, of, of mosques in Seattle. So the few that are here are packed to the gills. Right. Right. People. Well, I really appreciate coming on the show. This is very fascinating for me. I, w- I want to put a call out to the audience that they, if they have any questions, I, I say the number all the time. Leave us a voicemail. Contact us, 657-464-7609. We would love your questions. Maybe we could do a follow-up segment with Mark. If you'd like to check out his blog, it's doubtingmark.wordpress.com, and I'm sure he'd love the traffic and any questions you could throw his way via the website. Mark, we appreciate you coming on, and uh, goddamn, I think you're doing yeoman's work. <laughs> well, thanks. It's, it's, uh, it's been a fun talk. Awesome. That was great. And his blog is fascinating, and everybody should go check that out. Yeah, you can read in depth about all the different churches that he's gone to, including including the Church of Scientology three times. Yeah, yeah. 
and many other different types of churches. Yeah, like you said, the, not just the Unitarians, or I think he's been at Seventh Day Adventist, and there's many, many other churches that he's been to, including the you know the the famed kind of mega churches like that dickbag Mark Driscoll. So if you want the inside scoop without having to go to all these different churches yourselves, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, the internet's awesome. It's a beautiful thing. We really appreciate Mark a lot. Support for I Doubt It with Dollamore comes from generous, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners like yourself by way of Patreon. You can contribute per episode as much or as little as you'd like, comforted by the knowledge that you're within your budget and helping move the conversation forward one podcast at a time. If you too would like to become a supporter, please visit patreon.com slash I Doubt It with Dollamore. All right. Now, let's move on to what everybody is yearning for, or at least I hope, Dollamocracy. Dollamocracy 2016, facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. So Donald Trump is in the news, and actually he's going to be just about the only person we cover on this particular 100 episode 150's Dollamocracy segment. On Friday, there was a rally held by Donald Trump in an Alabama football stadium. They were estimating that 40,000 or more people were going to show up, and which would fill this the stadium to capacity. And that is not what happened. I saw a picture of the crowd from far off, from one end of the empty stadium, the empty portion of the stadium looking forward. And it looked to me like the stadium was not even half full. I've seen the number 30,000 people. And by the way I saw the picture, there's no way 30,000 people were there. I've also seen 13,000 as a number. And that seems far more plausible. Right. I think I was seeing the 13,000 number earlier in the weekend, and now it's kind of evolved to 30,000. Hmm. So I'm not sure what is true, but either way, um, I'm afraid. Well, I'm afraid f- for multiple reasons that I've talked about at length on the show. But now there's more reason to have a little bit of angst surrounding just who is supporting Donald Trump and his candidacy while he was speaking at this between 13 and 30,000 people, several instances where people were screaming out white power were heard. And this is just one instance. You agree with me? Yes, yes I can see that. Anybody with a sign that big has to agree. So, white power! Yeah, it's pretty clearly heard at the end there. And Like I said, it was multiple times that this happened. It wasn't just one isolated incident. While uh, Jeff Sessions, Alabama senator, while he was there, uh, it happened and no one said anything. It happened several times while Trump was speaking. He never said anything. And listen, if the mic is picking it up, you know he can hear it. So his campaign manager went on CNN and had it had a little talk or a little chat with one of their anchors. It was literally the hottest ticket in Mobile, Alabama this weekend. 30,000 people lining up around the block, all of them waiting in 90 degree heat to see the Republican frontrunner. 
Donald Trump also took in the view from above, of course, doing a flyby while the Rolling Stones roared over the stadium speakers. And when he landed, he doubled down on his controversial position to deny citizenship to the children of undocumented immigrants. And with us live now is Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. Uh, and, and Corey, just want to ask you about this. There's been a lot of back and forth about how Trump would execute this idea of taking away birthright citizenship. I, I suppose down in Texas right now, there's a lawsuit that says some officials down there are denying that citizenship to, to babies that are born in Texas. Uh, how, how is this going to work? Well, thanks for having me on. And first, we have to think about how big of a problem this really is. So if you th- think of the term anchor baby, which is those individuals coming to our country and having children here so that their children can be U.S. citizens. There's 400,000 of those taking place on a yearly basis. To put that in perspective, that's the equivalent of the population of Tulsa, Oklahoma, the 47th largest city in our country. We have a huge problem with illegal immigration. The first thing we need to do is to build a wall to stop people from coming into our country illegally. And, and what the happens if, uh, let me ask you this, Corey, the laws we have. I, let me jump in. If, if, let me ask you, if, if somebody comes over from Great Britain, for example, a couple comes from Great Britain, and they have a baby in Manhattan, uh, are you saying that that baby would also have its birthright citizenship taken away? In other words, it doesn't matter what part of the world well, so, the parents come from, or is this only about couples that come from Latin America? No, it's, it's from anywhere. There was a story just recently about the women coming from uh, China to come and have their children here. It's, it's well documented that uh, the DEA and, and the INS has followed a number of women coming from China to have their children here so that they can be U.S. citizens. Look, we're the greatest country in the world. Everybody wants to come here. Everybody wants to be a citizen of our great country. There is a proper way to do that. In order to do that, we need to follow the rules, just like many of our ancestors did. They came legally. They, they came through Ellis Island or they came through other places, and then they had children here and become great members of society. Coming to our country illegally is not an option any longer. And what are you, we let see me ask is you about illegal this. immigration is permanent. Right. Excuse me. Illegal immigration is coming through. We see the severity of the crimes that illegal immigrants are committing. We see that the catch and release program is a disaster. We see sanctuary cities should be defunded because of what has happened. We see people like Jamil Shah and Kate Steinle and their families who are first class victims of these illegals, and no one right. wants to talk well, about it. Let me ask you it. about this because... Uh, our country first. Right. And I'm sure you heard about this. Uh, there were some reports that at the event in Alabama, there was a man in the crowd at one point shouting white power. There's a, the, that situation in Boston that cropped up a couple of days ago where these, these two men beat up uh, an immigrant and said Trump was right. Uh, are you concerned that this rhetoric, this anti immigration rhetoric is is going to spiral out of control and people are going to get hurt well look nobody nobody's condoning violence and mr trump would never condone violence and you know i I don't know about the individual you're talking about in alabama i know there were 30 plus thousand people in that stadium they were very receptive to the message of making america great again because they want to be proud to be americans again there's nothing wrong with being proud to be an american now we would never condone violence if that's what happened in boston then by no means would that be acceptable in any nature? However, it, we should not be ashamed to be Americans. We should be proud of our country, proud of our heritage, and continue to be the greatest country in the world. And let me ask you about Jeb Bush. Uh, an, ad, an advisor at his super PAC uh, said that uh, Trump is really other people's problem, not, not, uh, not Jeb Bush's problem. 
Uh, what do you make of that statement? Are they being a little too confident that in the end it's going to be Trump versus Bush? Well, I think what you have is a low energy candidate who really doesn't excite anybody. Um, you know, their super PAC says that. And then that same day in Alabama, they fly an airplane uh, over the stadium to try and talk about Jeb's accomplishments, which are so few. So, you know, I think what they say and what they do are two different things. I think if um, if his candidacy was resonating, he wouldn't have 125 people in New Hampshire, seven miles away from Mr. Trump that has 2,500 people. Okay. So I think the crowds and the enthusiasm speaks for itself. The crowds do speak for themselves. That is very true. Corey Lewandowski, thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate it. The crowds do speak for themselves, and what they say is white power. <laughs> Goddamn. You know what I mean? Also, to say that 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 uh, Bush's super PAC is not... It, he's raised the most money, and I'm not de- defending George uh, Jeb Bush, but... Uh, He's raised a lot of money. He's clearly the front runner in that respect, just because Trump has is sitting on piles and piles of his own cash doesn't mean that there's not some support for Jeb Bush. So and did he say resignating at the end there? Or? I, th- I think he did. I think he was reading like me, <laughs> speaking like me, because the word would be resonating, not yes. resignating. Mm hmm. But maybe he's trying to mix two words together, and that's the that's the way, the new way to to really communicate properly. So way to go, Lewandowski. Good to go. So 538.com, the loved and venerated 538.com, has an article talking about everything that Trump gets wrong on immigration. So Donald Trump released a six-page immigration plan, which represents the most detailed policy proposal of his campaign to date. Wait, wait. Six pages. Yes. Wow. He's ready to really run the government and change the manner with which we deal with things of great and great consequence and import by drafting six pages to deal with our very serious immigration issues. It's also probably quadrupled spaced, right. just bullet points, right. but that's okay. So he says, quote, a nation. No, it just, it just, it's scrawled in Donald Trump handwriting. Oh, uh, believe me, <laughs> believe me. Yeah, just repeatedly. (laughs) Quote, a nation without borders is not a nation. There must be a wall across the southern border. 538 says underlying Trump's entire immigration policy is the image of thousands of people illegally streaming across the southern border. There are two big problems with this. One, there are far fewer unauthorized immigrants entering the U.S. today than in past years. And many of them aren't coming across the Mexican border. According to the latest estimates from the Pew Research Center, there were about 11.2 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. in 2012. That's down from a peak of about 12.2 million in 2007 and basically unchanged since 2009. In other words, there has been essentially no net illegal immigration in recent years. The number of people entering the country illegally has been offset by those leaving voluntarily or otherwise. Moreover, the number of unauthorized immigrants from Mexico has been steadily declining since 2007, while a rising share are coming from Central America and Asia. Hmm. Well, you know... It's no surprise that Donald Trump is wrong on the numbers and wrong. I mean, he's saying that there's a vastly higher number of of illegal aliens in this country than there are. It's just he's he's wrong because he's trying to whip up emotionality and a frenzy of support 
based on fear-mongering, and it seems to be, at this point, working. And I've said it before, but I'll, I'll re- reiterate it, that I really hope that the support that he's getting from these individuals who show up in droves is is based on not registered voters. I think a lot of these people are just looky-loos and interested in seeing Donald Trump, the reality star, because he really is more of a celebrity than he is a, a cultural influence. And while I guess in America that they're kind of one in the same, though, so yeah. it's, it's disconcerting. I mean, it would be nice if the 30,000 people that attended his rally in Alabama cared about these statistics because 538 also says, well, according to the Department of Homeland Security, that the number of people taken into custody at the border has decreased since 2012 as well. Yeah. So this whole we need to build a wall... Right. I mean, is that really the main solution? And is it solving a problem? I mean, it seems like this has just been decreasing. So it seems like that really isn't the major well, issue. Even uh, the places on the border where there is a wall right now, it's not impen- uh, impenetrable. It, it can be navigated. It can be maneuvered over. People can still get in the country, whether it be under or whether it be over. It's not uh, an end all to the problems that we face. So another talking point that Donald Trump says is, quote, the costs for the U.S. have been extraordinary. U.S. taxpayers have been asked to pick up hundreds of billions in health care costs, housing costs, education costs, welfare costs, etc. Of course, involving the illegal immigration. Right, right. And so 538 says most government social programs, food stamps, Medicaid, housing assistance and similar public benefits require a valid social security number and aren't available to people in the U.S. illegally. In fact, many benefits aren't available even to most legal immigrants until they have been in the country for five years. That's right. Of course, 538 says that doesn't mean that undocumented residents don't receive any benefits at taxpayers' expenses. Public education, school lunches, nutrition assistance for mothers and children, and some other programs are available regardless of immigration status, and all programs are open to the U.S.-born children of undocumented immigrants. Right, which is... A lot of what his problem is relative to trying to change the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which is altering our founding document. It's, you know, I don't know. I've I've just fundamentally got a problem with it. So we let's move on to the next 538 thing before we go crazy long. (laughs) We don't want to saddle the listeners with another two hour episode, Brittany Page. Well, we'll definitely be putting that article on the Facebook page and the Twitter page because there are many more talking points that they take issue with. And if you're ever face-to-face with a Trump supporter, it would be an interesting conversation to have those numbers on your side. Yeah, because numbers, they cure everything. There's no arguing with the numbers. The other one is that uh, they're questioning whether the Republican establishment is losing control of their party. And this is something that I've feared for a long time and talked about many times on the show about how the Republican Party has either lost its way or the leadership has completely lost control of messaging. So this article was released on August 18th, and it's kind of a 538 chat. And they sometimes do this where the staff of 538, including Nate Silver, kind of comes together and does a little chat on a subject. Huh. And yeah, so you have a bunch of geniuses talking statistics right. about the issues and it get it gets pretty interesting. So they talked about how the 
poll that was released during this time. It was the 18th, so it's a little bit ago, but Donald Trump was in the lead. He still is now. And Ben Carson and Ted Cruz, they were leading the Republican primary race. And a lot of people were saying that it's the outsider angry wing of the GOP that is coming to the top. Sure. And is is this indicating that something's going on, that the, you know, the Republican Party's last two nominees came from its establishment wing is that wing losing its grip hmm. because now you have donald trump ben carson ted cruz yeah people like that nutter butters extraordinaire so the senior political writer at 538 harry enton said i think it really depends on the definition of what is an outsider and an insider we can look back at the 2012 cycle and see where things were in november of 2011 we had newt gingrich taking the lead from herman cain Gingrich, Kane, Ron Paul, and Michelle Bachman added up to greater than 50% of the vote, and Mitt Romney ended up becoming the nominee. If I'm in the GOP's establishment wing, I'm far more concerned not with what the outsiders added up to, but that there is no insidery candidate who is doing particularly well. <laughs> insidery. And I think that's a great point. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of terrifying to think about Michelle Bachman. Uh, having been part of what was adding up to greater than 50% yeah. in the polls during that time. She's she's scary just by herself. If you if you add to the equation people who are blindly following her, <laughs> it makes for a, a nightmare. It's it's not good. And Nate Silver came back and said, "Well, Harry, you just preempted the disagreement we were supposed to have. One thing Republicans had going for them in 2012 is that there weren't a lot of establishment choices to pick from. Romney, obviously, then Tim Pawlenty. Then, if you're going by endorsements, the pre-oops Rick Perry might count. <laughs> this time around, the establishment vote might be split five or six different ways. Of course, it will probably consolidate around one or two candidates, but it could take some time. That's the other thing that he's getting to there in a very Nate Silvery way is the fact that the Republican field right now is the largest it's ever been in primary election. 17 candidates is unmanageable. Right. I find it funny too. Nate Silver later in this chat, he said, maybe Trump belongs in a third category. First category, moderate slash establishment. Two, very conservative. Three, Trump. <laughs> Just a separate category for right. Trump. Because, the, you know, the, the traditional rules of the road relative to a campaigning and elections, they don't apply to him. Saying something that would, would end the candidacy of, of someone prior to this does not work with Trump. It seems to put wind into his crazy sails. So we will also put that on the Facebook page. Again, 657-464-7609 if you'd like to join the conversation and help us move it forward. All right, almost wrapping it up. We want to talk about the fact that the Army Rangers School just graduated their very first women. First Lieutenant Shay Haver, 25, and Captain Kristen Greist, 26, received their Ranger tabs Friday, becoming the first women ever to successfully complete the U.S. Army's Ranger School at Fort Benning, Georgia, a grueling course that puts a premium on physical strength and endurance. Uh, this, is, this is good news for them. Very, very, very uh, proud news for them and their families, I'm sure. Um, by all accounts that I've, I've, I've delved in, I've researched, I've looked into it. I haven't talked to any of my friends who actually serve in the army, but I don't think they changed the standards 
for these ladies. No, they completed the course to the same standards as their 94 male classmates, a point emphasized by Major General Scott Miller, the guest speaker at the graduation ceremony. Miller, who graduated from Ranger School three decades ago, said he wanted to, quote, address the nonsense on the Internet. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen, standards are still the same. A five-mile run is still a five-mile run. Standards do not change. A 12-mile march is still a 12-mile march, he said. When I shake your hand, I know there's something behind that handshake. Rangers lead the way. This is uh, groundbreaking stuff. Very historic. It's great. Congratulations to those two uh, officers. It is, uh, it's a tough course. I, I, I'm waiting to see what happens with the United States Marine Corps and their officer training because women have yet to pass the test. They've yet to meet or exceed the standard set for the com- the officer's combat course. It's it's uh it's also well I apparently it's it's more grueling than the the army because they have had many people try, many women, world-class triathletes and the like. And still, it's it's uh, only men who have graduated. So, well, you get one meal a day. You yeah. get very little sleep. You are having to do very difficult tasks like a twelve mile march while carrying a thirty five pound rucksack without drinking water. Yeah, yeah. And it's listen. I've got several buddies that have their ranger tabs and have even ones who have served in dedicated ranger battalions and. Yeah, it's no joke. It's serious. And, and, and that, you know, that would lead me to kind of a, a disparity here is that these, these women, although graduated and passing the test and having the medal to graduate and earn their Ranger tab, they are still disqualified from joining the 75th Ranger Battalion and becoming active members in that combat unit. Even though they passed the same intense physical tests. That's exactly right. 49 push-ups, 59 sit-ups, a five-mile run with a 40-minute time limit, six chin-ups, a timed swim test, a land navigation test, several obstacle courses, three parachute jumps, four air assaults on helicopters, and 27 days of mock combat patrols. Right, and this is all while sleep-deprived, nutrition-deprived, water-deprived, it's it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. They obviously have the physical and mental acuity to get it done. I believe that the Army needs to open up those combat MOSs, those combat billets, and let them in. If they, if they can do the goddamn work and the standards were not lowered or changed because they're ladies, I'm saying that with air quotes, then they need to be allowed to do the same work and do the same jobs as the men because... They're qualified. And yeah, that's coming from a Marine, everybody. <laughs> I didn't even say it that time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we will wrap it up with this. Taking care of biz. You tried to get rid of it. You tried to stop it. Yeah, but like a sexually transmitted disease, you just can't you can't cure it. You can't get rid of taking care of biz, Brittany Page. Apparently, the audience loves it so much that they didn't want to make suggestions for something to replace it. So we are moving forward with our taking care of biz segment. And this 
episodes happens to, to involve the U.S. servicemen who thwarted the terror attack aboard a train in France. Well, two are servicemen. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And three men are really being hailed as heroes here with stopping the attack. And I think justifiably so. So the three men, Alec Scarlatos. Yeah. Very good. Maybe wrong, but but pretty uh, pretty good effort. Yeah, I'm pausing and smiling <laughs> because I know it's terrible. I'm so sorry. Okay. Spencer Stone. Ooh, Stone. You did that one really well. Yeah. <laughs> And Anthony Sattler. Yeah. He's he's the one who's not a not a serviceman. You've got an Air Force guy and you've got an Oregon National Guard member. And it's these three these three lifelong friends who are traveling Europe together. They're on this on the I don't know why the news keeps repeating the phrase high speed train, but they're on a train traveling through Europe and someone comes into their car and starts an attack. Right, he has an AK-47, and he's aiming it, but it is apparently temporarily jammed. That's right. And apparently these three men heard the sound of a gun being breached, and that caught that caught the soldier's attention. Yeah, of course. So one of the men, Alec, who's 22 years old, by the way, looked over to Spencer Stone, and he said, I just looked over at Spence and said, let's go. He jumped up and ran, grabbed the guy by the neck, got the handgun off him and threw it. So they just, they immediately yeah. sprung into action right. and thought, let's let's do this. Let's get this done. Let's save the day. And it's crazy. If you if you read accounts of this, and we'll put this on the Facebook page for you, and, and we'll obviously tweet it out too, but it it's a, a remarkable thing that happened because he was able to get to his box cutter in true Muhammad Atta 9-11 fashion. He had a box cutter with him, and he almost cut the thumb off of uh, the stone, stone kid, Spencer Stone. Right. Yeah, and uh, they had to reattach his thumb, and he, one of the guys got cut in the neck. I think it was a, a British passenger. There was other people involved, not just the servicemen, but it was because of the quick action and the... The, the violent force with which they they subdued this this perpetrator, this terrorist, this Islamist, uh, it's the reason that it was that was brought to a to a quick and safe conclusion. So thanks to them truly taking care of biz, hopefully hopefully this action by these American uh, these American men will foster a little bit of goodwill, with the French people toward toward us in America because eh, we're not their favorite. <laughs> well, and you have to just be so thankful for people who, when something like this is happening, instead of sitting there thinking someone else will take care of it yeah. or being too afraid, which is, of course, a legitimate reaction in that moment. But these men, they just stood up and they saved the right. day. I mean, many more people could have been hurt or killed yeah. If they hadn't done what they did. Awesome. They are awesome. And you, audience, you're awesome too. We appreciate you very, very much sticking with us. 150 episodes. We debated doing something special for this show, but I think we'll stick around. We'll do a, we'll do another Thanksgiving episode or something. That seemed to have gone over really, really well. So maybe you'll get something at 200. You'll certainly get something at Thanksgiving. We love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for spending as much time with us every week as you do. We love being your favorite source for news. News. And ridiculous comment. 
For Brittany Page, I am Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt It. Uh, today. Well, happy birthday, asshole. <laughs>